0: Kodak Harrison. <laughs> With the Paul Leslie Hour. Hey. Are you here? <laughs> There's a lot of you here. Let me count. And what are you doing here? Mm hmm. You're listening. You're listening to the Paul Leslie Hour, of course. And we have something extra special for you today. This undoubtedly is the most in-depth interview Paul's ever done. He welcomed singer, songwriter, poet, spoken word artist, and recording artist, Kodak Harrison, to come and give his entire story, the whole story, and nothing but the story, and to play music. Kodak Harrison was described by creative loafing newspaper of Savannah, Georgia, this way. Imagine a southern Tom Waits or a rural Leonard Cohen. That's as close as we can come to a nutshell description of the music of Kodak Harrison, a genuinely gifted artist in one of the Southeast's musical treasures. And to that we say, well stated. Kodak Harrison was interviewed in great detail and also performed songs and spoken word poetry. This interview was recorded at Jordan Digital Studios and then broadcast over the radio in a four-part special. Well, today, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, pronouns of every description... We present the entirety of what went down that evening, all in one place. By the way, you can be a supporter of the spoken word and patron of independent media merely by visiting thepaulleslie.com slash support. We thank all of you who help keep this show going. Whether it's a buck or two or more, it makes the mission possible. Well, I see no reason to further delay. It may help to have a nice beverage to enjoy. You'll be here a while, but it's worth it. Let's hear it. Let's hear the Kodak Harrison Session, now. It is with great pleasure we welcome singer-songwriter, recording
1: artist, poet, spoken word artist, Mr. Kodak Harrison. Kodak Harrison was named Best Spoken Word Artist, Critics' Choice in 2002, and Reader's Choice in 2003 and 2004 in Atlanta's Creative Loafing, and in 2008, Kodak was named Poet of the Year. Kodak is one of the current Atlanta Slam Masters and hosts the award-winning Java Monkey Speaks. So first of all, welcome Kodak Harrison, and thank you so much for making the time to do this in Traveling up here to do this interview, spoken word and acoustic performance. It's a pleasure to be. I think you got it
2: right when you said podunk. <laughs> I realized it was a little, little uh, tongue twister there. Thank you. It's glad to be here. It's good to be here. I'm glad to be here.
1: My first question. Who is Kodak Harrison?
2: Who is Kodak Harrison? I don't, don't start off by asking me a heavy question now with that. I could go anywhere with that. Kodak Harrison is an artist. I always wanted to be an artist, but I never believed I could be an artist because I grew up in a small town. And you folks got to realize, you know, uh I'm a, a little bit up in age. I've been around for a while and it was a little different when I was growing up. Uh You didn't have, everybody didn't play a guitar and everybody, you know, there wasn't cable, there wasn't internet, there wasn't even FM radio. So we thought that you had to be from LA, New York, uh, London, or maybe Nashville, uh, before you could do anything like that. And I'm talking about a performing artist, uh, or any type of artist, really. So I'd like to say I'm an artist and, uh, I get involved in a lot of different things. You mentioned spoken word and poetry, which I've been doing much more recently. Uh, originally I started out thinking I'd be a guitarist, but you have to be, have an open mind as an artist. You commit to being a life of an artist, at least in my perspective. Uh, and you open your mind up to doing different things. So I started out thinking I'd be a guitar player. That's the least of my talents. And I started writing songs and singing those songs I wrote. So next thing you know, you know, I was a singer— a performer putting together bands, making recordings. Uh, critics call me a poet. I was like, "Ooh, what is? What, I'm not a poet. I'm a songwriter." And that led to spoken word poetry. And most recently, I had an art opening. And since April, I've sold five paintings. So you know, it's just a, a, a kind of an open minded attitude as an
1: artist. Well, for this state of the artist report, I think most stories are best from the beginning. So tell us about your early days in Jackson, Georgia. (laughs) I like to say I grew up slowly
2: in Jackson, Georgia. In fact, I did. I lived in the same house for the first 18 years of my life. The only bump in the road, so to speak, was when my father died when I was the age nine. And, of course, that was a big bump. And I think basically I'm an artist because of that. Uh, I lived in a very small town with a very religious family background and it was very traditional. We didn't talk a lot, especially emotional things. Men didn't talk about emotion. There were no men in my house to talk about anything with anyway. And I needed an outlet for my emotions. Uh, and when I was a young boy, I went to Macon, Georgia, uh, to see an Otis Redding concert. Uh, I was one of maybe 10% of the audience that was white. We went right down front. We had no problem with that, but we noticed that we were... All the other white people sat up in the third balcony. And so for the remaining concerts that I went to that summer, which were headlined by James Brown and um, Wilson Pickett, we sat up there with the other white people. But uh, we were right down front for Otis, and that probably changed my life. I don't know that I knew it at the time, but that was the outlet for the emotion, uh, for my emotions that I was looking for. And I was really drawn to Southern soul and to blues in very emotional uh, music in the early days.
1: What types of music did you hear around the house growing up? Very little. I went to
2: church all the time. We were a very conservative religious family, and I was at church. Uh, I think I went to church twelve years in a row without missing Sunday school. We'd go on vacation, and I, they would push me down in the basement with a bunch of kids I didn't know to go to Sunday school on vacation, and. Always dreaded those situations, but it also tells you that I was a fairly healthy kid. Uh, I was able to make Sunday school most of the time, all the time, <laughs> for twelve years. So it was church music. I remember what I when I first heard what I thought was the first rock and roll I heard. Some other kids and I we snuck out on a hill overlooking a black revival on the outskirts of town. And once again, it was a segregated society. When I grew, I'm sixty years old now, let's go ahead and get that out of the way. I just turned 60 in April and I'm proud to be still here and still doing it and still, uh, making music and, and doing things uh, as an artist. But, uh, it was a different world in those days. Uh, but we sat outside overlooking a, uh, revival, uh, a, a black revival and they had bass and drums and electric guitar. And wow, that was rock and roll. And there's no doubt in my mind that that was the first rock and roll I experienced. But, you know, we listened to Perry Como and Lawrence Welks and, Lawrence Welk and, uh, you know, later on it was Ed Sullivan. I saw the Beatles, uh, Stones on the, on TV. I don't remember seeing Elvis. I wasn't quite old enough at that point. I, I'm more of a sixties, uh, generation than a fifties. So I, I didn't see Elvis, etc. In fact, when I saw Elvis, he was wearing jumpsuits and playing Vegas and I wasn't very attracted to that all, at all. But, and it was the Stones and somewhat the Beatles and other, uh, English rock and roll groups that I later listened to uh, that led me to American blues and R&B uh, I remember I bought my first record and I was with we came to Atlanta to go shopping you know there was no you know you had to come to Atlanta to go to Rich's or Davison's at Christmas or something and we were up here and and I bought my first record which was a Rolling Stones record uh, out of our heads that had the satisfaction on it uh, it also had that's how strong my love is a, a great Otis song. And I, I hid it from my friends because I thought they would make fun of me. Because at that time, only uh, girls listened to music. Because in the early '60s, it was all the Bobbies, bobby Darin, Bobby V, Bobby This, Bobby That. So it was not macho, you know. Only girls listened to music. And uh, but I—I I bought that album and I hid it from my friends. And uh, because they came over and, and found it, and they were going like, "Wow, that's great!" And so then I was all proud of it. Oh yeah, yeah, I bought it. I'm um, you know, but. I uh, also danced, uh something that guys didn't do in my small town. Uh, but it—it it was my way of talking to women. I—I I, I was terribly shy and couldn't talk to women, but I could ask them to dance. And as a result, the older girls in my high school would ask me to take them to Griffin to the uh, WQXI dances. We didn't have any dances in Jackson. Of course, once they got there, they went off looking for the Griffin boys. But I could tell all my friends, I went out with this senior. And they were going, you went out with her? And I'd say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Just because I could dance, you know. And so it uh, uh, doesn't sound rebellious to people of today's time. But uh, buying a record or dancing was pretty rebellious when I was growing up in a small town in Jackson,
1: Georgia. Fascinating. Tell us about the experience of your first concert that you went and saw. Uh, Like I said, I went to see Otis Red. I went with some older kids,
2: not that much older. I don't want to make it sound like I was 10 years old or something. But down to Macon, and they said, you know, we want to go see Otis. And and I knew because I bought the Stones record, and I researched all those songs. And, of course, you didn't have the Internet to research, but, you know, I would read the all the liner notes, et cetera, and, and find – and, of course, there were no record stores in Jackson either. But somehow uh, I knew about Otis from the Rolling Stones. And so – and they said, we're going to go down to you want to go? And I said, sure. And I knew that, you know, I wasn't going to ask my mother to go – uh, it was a beautiful experience. Like I said, uh, you know, the majority of the audience was African American. Uh, we went right down front. You know, stage was not huge. We were right on stage and the only problem we had was these big mamas trying to get to Otis and they would kind of <laughs> <laughs> envelop us as they were going on stage. And these were pretty wild concerts, uh, in in a sense, while in a sense that the floors were open and everybody was dancing. You know, this is a, you know, think of 60s soul, people dancing. You know, the white folks were sitting up in the top battle, just sitting there, but people on the floor were dancing and we were right there in the middle of them. And it was a, it was a life changing experience.
1: When did you start to fancy yourself as an artist? Uh, it took me a while. I had learned a few chords because I wanted
2: to join this band. I wanted to play drums because doesn't every kid want to play drums? I don't know. I wanted to play drums, and and my mother was not going to buy me a drum set, and I don't know where I would have practiced anyway. But so she bought me a little fifty dollar harmony guitar, and I didn't realize at that, that day in, in those days that you could take a guitar and make it playable. So it was extremely hard to play, and but I learned a few chords. I was an athlete in high school. Uh Even though I loved music, I was more an athlete. But this is a small time high school, so. I wasn't big enough, uh, fast enough to actually go play at a college, uh, especially one like Georgia Tech, where I was a big Georgia Tech fan, and I got a scholarship to Georgia Tech based on uh, academics in need, predicated on the fact that I majored in textiles. Jackson was a big textile town at that time with a bunch of cotton mills and things. Uh, that's not the case anymore. In fact, it's now declared part of Metro Atlanta, but uh, in those days, the industry was textiles, and so i got a a scholarship uh sponsored by a a local textile mill and they offered a scholarship and i won the scholarship and that took me to georgia tech so and then i quit playing music for three years but i enjoyed music and listened to music and went to concerts and bought records like crazy and finally uh, uh, as a senior at tech i was in a fraternity for a little while and i was the social chairman of that fraternity i booked the bands And then I left the fraternity because I didn't really agree with all the things that fraternity is about. After I left the fraternity, I started playing guitar as a senior at Tech. That was a little late to try to think I could do anything with it. So then I went to graduate school. I said earlier, my father died when I was young. My mother remarried after 10 years while I was in college, and my stepfather offered me the opportunity to go to graduate school wherever I wanted to. The alternative was to go to Vietnam. I had a, a low lottery number and uh, I took uh, the graduate school option and but he offered me the option of going wherever I wanted to go. Uh, he was a World War II veteran he didn't want me to go to Vietnam especially at that point in the in time so I said New Orleans. I want to go to New Orleans. I mean, I'd been down there to Mardi Gras. We used to go down there from Atlanta to Mardi Gras every year. And I love New Orleans. And it was, it's just the whole free spirit. And of course, blues and jazz and soul just kind of oozes from the pavement down there. And I was like, I want to go to New Orleans. So it was in New Orleans that uh I finally got the confidence. And of course I was playing guitar a little at that time. Three things happened between my first two years there. My first year I didn't play much music except a little bit by myself, just playing on guitar. I went to concerts continually. I saw the Almond Brothers two weeks before Dwayne died. I saw him five times before he died. That goes back to that Macon background, kind of, uh, uh, with Otis and the Almond Brothers. That summer, I bought my this guitar that I have in my lap right now. Also, and then that fall, I was given the name of Kodak, and I decided that I was going to be an artist. So I was like reborn in New Orleans. So Kodak was born in New Orleans in 1972, the year I bought my acoustic guitar and the year I was given the name Kodak.
1: One of the songs on your album, In Search of the Blue Groove, it's called Lazy River. Yes. And it mentions uh, New Orleans in it. It is the first song ever copyrighted.
2: After New Orleans, after I graduated from Tulane, uh, with an MBA, by the way. <laughs> I was thinking I'd get the music business. I thought that's not the way to get the music business unless you want to work in the accounting department. But, uh, uh, and I still had two years in the army, uh, facing me and I went to California and it was in California that I wrote that song. And it was the first song I copyrighted because some guy came up to me and I was playing a gig at a place called East of Eden in Salinas, California. I'm a huge Steinbeck fan, but that we're getting ahead. I'm getting ahead of myself here. And he wanted to know if he could do that song, and I was like, "Oh, sure." And I was thinking, "Boy, I better get a copyright." In those days, you had to get somebody to do a lead sheet because I was not uh, musically trained, and you know, it was a little bit more of a process to to copyright one song at a time. Now you can fill up a CD or a cassette uh, in years back and just send them in and copyright a bunch of songs under a certain title but and you don't have to have a lead sheet and all that. But yeah, that song is the first song I ever copyrighted. Uh and I recorded it most recently, you know, you you're talking about on that song that album came out in nineteen ninety nine. Well I also recorded it on my uh I think it was on my very first album which came out in eighty four. I had the privilege to play it at some of the benefits for the Katrina musicians uh, from New Orleans and and whatnot. And that's been a song that's been with me uh, for a while. And I believe one of my better songs.
1: Can you remember the first song you ever wrote?
2: Yes. And it was a juvenile song in high school. Like I said, I learned a few chords. Uh, wrote this song about, uh, I had this little man that kind of dangled from my car mirror that my girlfriend had gave me. And I wrote this song about the little man because we would broken up. And, uh, but it was a horrible song, <laughs> but I do remember writing that song. Like I said, and it was probably another three years before I picked up guitar and, and continually played when I was a senior in college, but I do remember writing that song. Now, what song do I, do I remember was the f- first one that I Actually kind of felt like was a keeper. Well, Lazy River Blues is certainly one of them. I've gone back in some old notebooks and found some songs that I thought were pretty decent and recorded recently that were early songs uh, that were written. One of them that's on uh, my latest studio CD, Dreams and Nightmares, called Georgia Sunshine. Uh, I was doing an interview for Georgia Music Magazine and they wanted to quote from one of my songs or poems about Georgia. And I was thinking, mm, I don't know. I was looking through notebooks trying to find one and I found that song and I thought, you know, that's a pretty interesting song. I think when I wrote it in 75 or whenever and I was homesick for Georgia, I didn't relate to it so much because I was, it was a fantasy uh, about the future. But then I kind of grew into that song after 30 years. You know, finding that quote, I, I wrote some music for it and recorded it. So that street corner band about experiences when I went to play the streets of San Francisco for tips, that was another fantasy. Uh, that was one of the earlier songs I wrote. So I, I would say, you know, some of the earliest songs uh, that are still with me today would be Lazy River Blues, uh, Street Corner Band. um uh, Georgia Sunshine.
1: Would you like to perform one of your early songs? Why don't um,
2: I do uh, Georgia Sunshine then?
1: Oh, that would be great.
2: Grab the dream to California. Chased it round and back a time or two Moved up to New York City It's just something I had to do Woke up somewhere down in Texas On the wrong side of a lousy day There was a time when my nights didn't seem so cold And I'd swear that sunshine every day Do you know you know I love you baby? thought for a while that I was going to make it. And that thought took me straight to the cloud. It was just a hand. All I had to do was reach out and take it. Hear the applause, the cheers of the crowd. But somewhere along the way I must have taken a wrong road. Cause dreams just don't seem so real anymore It's just cheap whiskey, smoky bar room. And women that don't know how to close the door Do you know, you know I loved you, baby in my dreams and I hadn't done that in such a long long time But there's no doubt what it means Memory takes me to a little town where people care To the fresh clean smell of a Georgia pine And in those memories I was always happy there In the loving arms of the one I left behind Do you know, you know I loved you baby Do you know
1: Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to an acoustic performance, and interview with Mr. Kodak Harrison. So, Mr. Harrison, you mentioned that you were a solid music fan growing up, and you talked about the, some of the concerts you went to and some of the musicians that you listened to and some of your musical experiences. When did you make the shift from being a music fan to when you started to look at it as a profession?
2: Well, like I said, in New Orleans, when I made the commitment to being an artist, and at that point, uh, the only thing I was doing artistically was playing guitar. Uh, I had started maybe writing a few songs, but basically just learning guitar. Uh, I was really attracted to blues, and I was learning blues. Uh, I think that's a basic for rock and roll, uh, in, in my opinion. But, you know, I still didn't exactly think that I could make a profession out of it, but I was going to try to find some way to be involved in it. And then I kept playing. And, and of course, I, I mentioned two years in the army in California. The whole time I was there, uh, I was, it was post Vietnam and, uh, they were phasing down. I was involved with basic training. They were phasing back. And so I only worked maybe 20, 30 hours a week. And I was in a very disciplined atmosphere, obviously, in the, in the army. I was running about six miles a day and playing, you know, five or six hours of guitar a day. And uh, trying to learn to play guitar. There was a little college there in Monterey called Mon- Monterey Peninsula College. And I would go down there uh, every week on Wednesday and play three songs. Uh, I'm not a person that uh, grew up, you know, as a natural performer who just loved to get in front of people. In fact, I was terrified to get in front of people. And in those days, I'd play those three songs, and my hands would be shaping uh, shaking my throat would get dry and it was just really a, a painful experience for me, but it's just something I wanted to do. I love music so much that I was like i'm gonna do this and then uh, and then I started um, you know going up to San Francisco and other places to play for tips on the street and stuff and two months after I got out of the army uh, I got my first professional gig in uh a place called East of Eden in Salinas, California. Now, most of my education was very technical, so I wasn't forced to read literature. Uh, I read a lot of uh, chemistry, physics, uh, math, uh, business stuff, accounting, you know, economics, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I didn't read literature, so I felt deprived. So I started reading like crazy. And, of course, John Steinbeck, uh, Nobel Prize winner uh, from his book, Cannery Row, there was a right there in Monterey. He was from Salinas. Uh, East of Eden was a famous movie with James Dean in it. And so I started reading John Steinbeck. And to to this day, he is my favorite author, Grapes of Wrath, etc. of Mice and Men. Uh, you can go on and on. And, and to think that I had my first professional gig uh, two months after I got out of the Army in a place called East of Eden in Salinas, California, I was ecstatic. And I went over there. And set up the equipment that afternoon. But yet I was dealing with that nervousness. So I thought, well, you know, I'll just go in right when I'm supposed to play. And I'll walk up there and start playing so I won't sit around and get nervous. I'm just the opposite these days. Even though I was late coming up here because it took me forever to get here. I like to get places early. Get comfortable with a situation. You know, make sure there's no problems. So I went in there. And when it was time to play and there was somebody else playing, uh, there was a double booking. They gave me his gig a week later and I played the off and on for over a year, but that was like a welcome to the music business. I, I was reading that Jimmy Buffett book, uh, Pirate Looks at 50, uh, a while back and kind of a similar situation happened to him. So, I, I mean, you know, I think that's probably... Something a lot of people go to go through when they first get in the music business is uh, they run into obstacles like that. And uh, but it was a certainly a welcome to the music business experience, and uh, you got to get past those things. But it was pretty shocking at the time. But uh, I did a, a week later have my very first professional gig where I actually got paid for playing, uh, and the payment was agreed upon ahead of time at a place called East of Eden in Salinas, California.
1: Tell us about the first time that you made an album or an EP. I came back from California. I'd actually, uh, I
2: was, you know, had been in the Army. I'd lived out there for uh, three and a half years. Uh, I was a resident of California, had the GI Bill, and I was accepted at Berkeley to go to music school. But I had spent, I don't know how many years of life, since I was four years old in kindergarten in some kind of, you know, institution, uh, whether it be schools or in the Army, and I was sick of institutions. And even though I wanted to move to San Francisco, I didn't really want to go to school, even though I didn't know exactly how I was going to live. All I wanted to do was play music, but I didn't know how I could do that. And uh, so I thought, well, this way I can get the GI Bill and I go to Berkeley and, and it was very inexpensive to go to school and maybe I can figure out what's going on. I love San Francisco. And then I got a call from an old friend that wanted me to come and play at his wedding, and he, you know, was whining about it. Another friend from Jackson was living with me at the time there, and he said, "If y'all hadn't moved out there, I might not be getting married." You know, I'm alone, you know, that kind of stuff. And we were like, "Come on, get real." But but I came back and sang in his wedding, stayed in Jackson two weeks, and moved to West Virginia because a lot of my friends from uh New Orleans, musician friends, etc. The guy who basically taught me to play guitar had moved to West Virginia to become part of this artistic kind of communal community. For, for these people that might hear this, that what the hell is he talking about? It's like a hippie farm, you know. <laughs> but it cost me $10 a week to live there and that included food and I could play my guitar all the time. So there was a period of time when I went back and forth between Atlanta and I'd come down here. Of course, it cost me more money to live down here, but there was more going on and I'd go up there and it didn't cost me anything and I could play a lot and I could experience a lot, but there was not a music scene up there and it was back and forth, back and forth. And, uh, finally decided I needed to, uh, move back to Atlanta and not back to Atlanta. I had, well, I'd been to school there for four years, but to Atlanta for the first time in 79. And, uh, I think it was not too long after that. My girlfriend and I moved back to West Virginia we broke up and I moved back to Atlanta and I decided that I needed to record. And I recorded this little EP called Kodak, simply Kodak, uh, in 1981 and put that out. I got a couple little mentions in the Cree of Loafing, but that was not the big thing. And then after that, I decided I need to move to New York City to, you know, I wanted to experience the ultimate American urban experience. And where else are you going to find that about New York City? I mean, you know, I, I was, a had read all about the village scene. Of course that was over at that time. Uh, but I thought I'm going to New York City. I didn't know a soul. I went up there and I didn't stay there very long, just a few months. It was a struggle, but I was playing in the village. The guy that was running the, uh, thing there at Kenny's Castaway ways, uh, on Bleecker street, uh, said, you know, I, I like what you're doing. You need to, you need to, start a band and record an album. Now the, the acoustic thing was happening in the seventies and it started happening again in the nineties, but during the eighties, it was all band. You couldn't get a gig with an acoustic guitar. Uh, I mean the Jimmy Buffett's, the, you know, Jim Croce's, uh, the James Taylor's, that was a seventies thing. Uh, this was eighties. So I thought, well, that sounds good, and I don't know how I would do that in New York City. I don't know so, but I made this little recording when I was in Atlanta. I could go back there. I know musicians there. I can put together a band. I can record an album. So I did. I came back and recorded my first uh album in 1984, Just a Disguise.
1: Do any of the songs from that era uh still find their way in your performances?
2: Uh Some do. There are a couple that... Uh, might be appropriate, but yeah, some of those songs there, there were, you know, several on that album that, um, I still play often and I have recorded again, uh, to try to get different versions or better recordings or whatnot and on, uh, subsequent, uh, releases. Uh, there was a, uh, song on there called Rudy's Restless and, and I certainly can't play that one because that's a band song, which is a punk ska song that, one time I was in West Virginia and three different bands in Charleston, West Virginia had learned that song. And I sat in with three different bands on one Saturday night singing that song. And, you know, I thought, wow, I've got it made now. people are covering my songs, but that was in Charleston, West Virginia, you know, but uh, <laughs> that was on that album. And there's some, some others, uh, Lazy River Blues, which you mentioned a song called It Must Be Summertime that I still play. There's another one that was a reggae song on there that sometimes do us a spoken word piece called Slums of the Soul. I don't play that song anymore, but, uh, and then there are other ones that I haven't touched since then. So I I could play one song from that. This is, uh, must be summertime. Let me just, uh, I'm sure this, this is going on the radio, but I just want to tune up here right quick, uh, um, and I'll give a brief kind of description of how this song came about. Uh, when I first moved back to Atlanta, um, and I was moving, looking around for places to live, and I ended up in Little Five Points, and I said, I've got to live here, or somewhere close to here. There was a waitress at the Little Five Points Pub, which is the very first place in Atlanta that I played that um it doesn't exist anymore but there were other people that played their first gig there i mean it's debatable whether the indigo girls played their first gig there and other people but anyway and there was a waitress there that i asked uh kind of out and she said maybe and this song came as a result of that She gonna do She just said maybe the girl said maybe. Cats on the prowl. Bats buzzing street lights. Mama rocks a sleepless child. Me, I'm headed on back to my place. With one thing on my mind. What does she mean by maybe? What does maybe mean? Out on the street there's a boy and a girl embraced against an old Chevrolet He swears he'll love her forever Right now she don't even care Not tonight There's love in the air Not tonight Just go back down that ass. Maybe I'll try a new place. Probably fall in love. So hard to hold, but so easy to find. Out on the street, there's a boy and a girl, braced against an old Chevrolet. And he swears he'll love her forever. But right now, she don't even care. Not tonight, it's love in the air, not tonight, it's love in the air, must be summertime, must be summertime, summertime, must be, must be summertime. Oh, I swear it must be summertime
1: Great song. Thank you. Given the recordings that you were doing, when did you make the shift from doing uh, songs, and then how did you go from that to starting to do spoken poetry?
2: Uh, in the early 80s in Atlanta, critics were calling me a poet. In fact, Russell Shaw, the music editor of Creative Loafing in 1983, called me Atlanta's best poet, musical or otherwise. And that scared uh, the daylight side of me. I didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, I hadn't been schooled in poetry. I'd read very little poetry. i read a lot of fiction, but uh, I didn't know. That scared me. But it kind of put a, you know, a thought in the back of my mind. And other critics uh, started labeling me a poet also. I didn't accept that label at all. Later on in the uh, late 80s, I went to a poetry reading with a friend of mine that I had a lot of respect for. And he invited me to come to this poetry reading over in Emory at the Emory Village. And I went over there and it just, you know, there wasn't a lot of happening uh, in poetry except for maybe fine art poetry in the, you know, at Emory or Georgia State or something at that time. It just seemed like nobody knew what to do and nobody was starting. And I said, well, I'll do something. And I just recited a word, a song, uh, without uh, music. And that's kind of how it started. And then it grew from there in that. You know, I kept getting these reviews calling me a poet, and I started thinking about it more and more. And then, you know, in 96, we're jumping way ahead, uh, I went to Boston, and I uh, was on a, doing some gigs up there. I need a place to stay for a couple of uh, nights, and there had been a poet who had stayed at my house in Atlanta, and I called, and I knew him and his wife, both poets. Uh, his wife, Patricia Smith, is going to be at the... Uh, decatur book festival uh, coming up soon at at java monkey on sunday night but uh, patricia smith and she used to be a a music uh, reviewer for the um, paper there in chicago and then in boston she was writing for the uh, boston globe she was also a poet and then and so she took me out to these poetry rings that were happening every night somewhere in boston or cambridge there there were two or three happening every night i did my first poetry slam there and just kind of Experience and I came back to Atlanta and in the next winter that was in uh the fall of ninety six and in the winter of ninety seven I put together my first poetry reading in order to try to get Patricia Smith to find out a way to pay traveling poets uh in Atlanta who weren't gonna go to a university and I started giving poetry readings and, and uh I've done that uh ever since including the last eight years of every Sunday night at Java Monkey Indicator, Java Monkey Speaks, I've been doing uh portrait readings there. But uh, it kind of started with critics and th- putting that season in my mind and just started thinking about it. And I think the very first time I ever recorded uh, a piece without music was for a bunch of uh, live tapes, cassettes that I put out called the Beatnik Blues Tapes, which came out in 94 which I recorded with my band, Lucky Street, in various different uh, versions. You want me to do that very first piece that I ever did, Spoken Word, and I'd be glad to do that. Well it, it. It was a song uh, on uh, my second album, which came out in 86, called uh, Angel of Mercy, and I converted it because uh, I felt like it was more poetic. It didn't have a lot of rhyme in it. For some reason, I thought at that time, uh, that poets didn't rhyme. And that's true. Uh, they, they go through different periods, you know, there's different styles and different periods of history when they rhyme and when they don't rhyme. And, and you know, and at that point, you know, all the poets decided they could make music, Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan in the sixties, and they started playing music. And then the poets kind of rebelled against this music thing and started writing poetry that didn't rhyme and wasn't musical. And, you know, it's that kind of thing. Uh, but anyway, so I chose this piece, uh, specifically because I thought it was poetic and it didn't have a lot a rhyme in it. It's called Angel of Mercy. Just the other day, I was sitting in the park watching an old man. He had a smokestack spewing from his lips, a hole in his hat, and nothing at his fingertips. Except for the city. And everybody knows that the city can be hard and cold when you ain't got nothing to bribe it with. So he's competing with the pigeons for the crumbs. But then along comes his salvation. She takes him in. Puts a little soup in his bowl, a little love in his heart, because she's an angel of mercy. Now, when I got up this morning, I felt like I was in some kind of meat grinder with a bunch of horses and kangaroos and dogs and maybe a few cows. You know, this burger ain't the real thing. It ain't a 100%. <laughs> What's your beef, buddy? But, you know, they'll chew you up and spit you out like spent bazooka bubble gum. Somebody come along, step on you, then they grind your ass in the pavement and say, walk, walk on, walk on, walk on, walk on, walk on, walk on down the street. But then along comes your salvation. She takes you in, scrapes you up off the street, puts you on your feet again because she's an angel of mercy. She's an angel. So that was the first uh, spoken word piece that I did. I recently, uh, Poetry Atlanta, which I'm chairman of, released a DVD, and uh, a performance of that is on the DVD. I wanted to kind of document that. As I think maybe I'm, I've got better spoken word pieces now, but uh, I felt like in a historical reference, I wanted to do that uh, piece in particular for that reason.
1: Who would you say your influences are, whether it be poetry or music?
2: Oh, they've always been the songwriters. Like I said, early on, it was the soul singers and the blues musicians, uh, uh, Otis Redding, etc. But later on in the 70s, I got into the songwriters, and, and I got into the poetic songwriters. I'd been—I always loved Dylan, but the people that really turned me on were people like Springsteen and Tom Waits. Those writers uh, were very poetic, uh, working-class, street uh, beatnik, uh, bohemian-type uh, uh, singer, songwriter, poets. Uh, later on, Leonard Cohen, and uh, in the soulful sense, I always loved Van Morrison too. In terms of the songwriters that that really uh, seemed to hit for me, it was the more soulful, uh, uh, as well as poetic songwriters, uh, Tom Waits and uh, Bruce Springsteen. You know, even Ricky Lee Jones and people like that.
1: Well, maybe there's a song from uh, another writer that you'd like to pay tribute to.
2: Oh, I could do that. I could do that. Uh, this is one uh, by Springsteen. It's not one of his well-known songs, and it comes off his album "Goes to Tom Joad," which is uh, referring to uh, the uh, Steinbeck book. Uh, Tom Joad was the character in "Grapes of Wrath," so I can kind of hit both of those uh, areas. I think that's the reason. I one of the reasons I like this song because it comes from that album and, and that's the subject matter and it's and it's not more of his well-known records. I'm not going to try to do uh, Dancing in the Dark for you or anything. So this is called uh, Dry Lightning. Through my rollbone in the morning What's the ring on the stove turn red? Stared hypnotized into a cup of coffee Pulled on my boots Made the bed Screen door hanging off its hinges Kept banging me awake all night And I looked out the window The only thing in sight Was dry lightning On the horizon line It's just dry lightning You own my mind I taste the heat of her blood like it was a holy grail. Descend beautiful spirit into the evening pale. Rappalooza's kicking in corral smelling rain There's a low thunder rolling Across the musky plain and it's just dry high, high lightning On the horizon line Just dry lightning You own my mind well, I drive down Everarder Street Where she danced to make ends meet. And I spend my night over my gin while she talks to her men. Now that big yellow sun comes bringing up the day. says, ain't nobody ever giving nobody nothing. You ever really need it anyway. I get so sick of the fighting. Lose my fear of him. But I can't lose your memory. sweet smell of your skin it's just dry lightning on the horizon line it's just dry lightning just dry lightning On the horizon line It's just dry lightning You own my mind It's just dry lightning Just dry lightning, you're on my mind.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to our interview and performance from Kodak Harrison. When somebody listens to one of your records or when they see you perform, what is it that you hope the listener gets out of the experience?
2: We're all entertainers to some degree, uh, even though I've never approached it quite like, say, Jimmy Buffett would or somebody. I'm, I'm not that sort of an entertainer. I'm more of a artistic. Uh, but I hope they they get something for it. They're entertained by it or they... Uh, makes them think or there's something uh, but I, I want people when they come out to clubs of course it's a different situation it's more of a, a party or something you know in the past you know uh, a lot of bands I had we we've played a lot of bars and we tried to make people have a good time but when I'm doing a spoken word po- performance or you know, on certain CDs you know it's more of a Artistic experience. What do I want to, want them to get out of it? I hope it moves them in some way, emotionally. I'm not talking about necessarily making them cry. Maybe I, maybe it makes them laugh. I don't know. Uh, I'd like for them for it to create some kind of emotional experience uh, for the, for the listener.
1: Would you say that a shift in your music happened from if you look at the albums from the '80s and then from what you recorded in the '90s?
2: Uh, absolutely. I had a major event happen in the late eighties. Uh, in fact, I had had, I was doing, I was trying to be a rock star. I was doing the rock and roll thing, I had rock and roll bands. I just had a record produced by, uh, Brendan O'Brien. Uh, in fact, uh, speaking of Springsteen, I think he's done the last four Springsteen records or whatever. Anyway, it was, and Brendan is a great musician and a great producer, great engineer. And I was real excited about that record, but my, the record I had with my, the deal I had with my record company was not what I thought it was. And let's just say uh, there was some problems there. And then I had this accident, which uh, going into six and a half hours of surgery, the surgeon said I had one in a hundred chances of surviving, told my mother after the surgery that I would not survive. And recently in conversations with my surgeon, I just uh, celebrated 20 years, he said that uh, I had... Uh, Managed to fully recover and beat one in a million odds for full recover, which is hard for me to grasp. Uh, and I've tried to uh, get a grasp of that and try to figure out why I've survived, and I hadn't quite figured that one out. But uh, there are certain things. They got me to Grady. Uh, and I'm a big supporter of Grady. The best trauma center in the southeast within 15 minutes after the accident. Uh, there was some, and the way, and the way it got me there so quick was, uh, kind of a stroke of luck. We won't get into that so much here, but, uh, that was a major life changing. When I woke up five days later after being on life support, and of course I thought I was going to be great, uh, I never realized that I even went through the accident and all that situation. I hadn't heard the doctors saying that I wasn't going to live and, and my friends were upset with me because they, I was taken a little too lightly and they took me and walked me over to the mirror that Grady, so I could see that I had 30 staples in my head and had, uh, gone through this really traumatic situation. But, uh, that kind of thing will, will change you. And I came out of there and I was like, you know, it's not so important to be a rock star or make a lot of money. I just want to be true to myself. I want to be an artist. And, and, you know, I didn't get religion or anything any more than, I may have had or had not before then, but it did make me really rethink about things and, uh, and realize why, what are you doing this for? Why are you in this? What is the reason? Do you, I mean, what's important to you? And the important thing to me was to be an artist who didn't compromise his artistic goals. Uh, whether he made lots of money or not. I mean, I have no problem. I'd love to be, you know, uh, a lot, uh, more well off than I certainly am. But I, I really wanted to, uh, to redefine and made more true to my initial reasons for getting involved in the whole thing. So as a result, I let that record go because, uh, uh, I didn't like compromises I was expect to make on the deal for that record. And so that record never came out. Who knows? That may have been the, the, the breaking point of my career. It might have been the thing that, uh, it might not have made any difference in the world. I might have ended up, if I'd keep, uh, approaching things like I was, I may be, I might have been dead now. I mean, I almost was anyway. So I came out of that with a different approach and I went back and, and thought, what, what are your roots? My roots were in poetry, poetic lyrics and acoustic guitar. So I gave up the electric guitar. As a result, I haven't played electric guitar in 20 years. Uh, somebody gave. I asked me to sit in uh, my saxophone player, Nick Longo, and his band and shoved an electric guitar player in my hand. And I'm like, ooh, I, I, I'm not comfortable with it. Uh, I started out on acoustic and I decided to go back to my roots and singer-songwriter. At that time, I didn't realize I was going to quite get into the poetry as much as I did. But I was thinking along of being a writer and more my songwriting, so my lyrics, and, and try to... Back in the 80s, the managers I had were trying to get me to take the poetry out of my lyrics, um, because they thought that was over the audience's head, et cetera, or whatever. I don't know. To me, it seems like you a good manager is one that recognizes an artist's strong points and builds on that. Doesn't try to change him because you can't be. I mean, you can't make me Springsteen because there's already Springsteen. I mean, you know, you can't make me Tom Waits because there's already Tom Waits. Uh, you gotta uh try to find the uniqueness in an artist, and that wasn't happening. Uh, so I had a whole different attitude after that and I, I decided that it wasn't so important that I'd be a rock star. And quite frankly, uh, I wanted to get back to my roots and I started my own little record company out of that. I want to take control of my life. Now I realized since then that it's hard to, you can't do everything. You need the help of others. And I've certainly had a lot of help from a lot of people, but, uh, uh, it kind of changed my direction, not so much as it, it just purified it. And took out a lot of the, the, the BS, in my opinion. And f- I refocused on uh, reason I was doing it and what I wanted to do with it. And, uh, uh, so that was a big, big, big thing. So when the nineties came around, I was going back more in an acoustic direction and, uh, went over to Decatur where Eddie was at the track side, Eddie of Eddie's Attic. And, uh, there was an acoustic scene happening there. That's where I met uh, Sean Mullins and Christian Bush and, And a lot of other people, uh, already knew the Indigo Girls and Caroline Aiken and other people in the acoustic scene, but, uh, and kind of refocused and, and kind of jumped onto that scene, which I was really a kind of, that was where my roots were anyway. And that's, that's the way I'd started out. So, uh, I kind of moved away from, uh, I'm more of an electric rock scene and I still love, I love the energy and, and, you know, and, uh, I love Neil Young. I I didn't mention Neil Young. I mean, when he gets his starts distorting that guitar, I'm like, wow. I mean, he influenced me for a while there. I was uh, putting the distortion pedal on my acoustic guitar just to try to get a little more crunch and sustain because I love that kind of stuff. I I don't want to be limited into a certain sound or genre, but I'm just more comfortable on acoustic guitar, more cu- comfortable with music that focuses on lyrics. And that's pretty what I feel like is what I do and what my strong points are. And as I become more involved in the poetry scene next winter, I'm going to have the, the chair over at Georgia Tech, the McEver chair, which is a revolving chair that changes every year in poetry, which blows my mind. But, uh, and then those quotes you were reading way back, uh, it's a spoken word artist, a poet and everything. When I started out, I was going to be a guitar player. And, and like I say, I said earlier, I think that's the least of my talents. I tried to get back, try to rediscover the things that were my strong points and build on those. I want to perform a song that is really important to me. And I want to introduce it with a spoken word piece so I can kind of cover both realms there. Uh, I mentioned Otis Redding early on. My influences, major influences were Otis Redding and Martin Luther King Jr. Otis was, gave me that soulful background. And, and I tell people I'm from Jackson, Georgia, which is halfway between Atlanta and Macon. So I feel like my influences are kind of somewhere between Atlanta and Macon. Macon being, um, Otis and the Almond Brothers, that blues, soulful, emotional, music, uh, and then more philosophical, more poetic, more spoken word. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Martin Luther King Jr. is the country's best spoken word artist uh, that we've ever had. But anyway, and that shook me up when I was at Georgia Tech. Well, for instance, I always like to tell this story. There was, it was really a tumultuous time. I went to Georgia Tech my freshman year. Everybody had to be in ROTC. You wore coats and ties to the football game, even if you didn't have a date. Two years later, we were jeans and T-shirts, even if we had a date to the football games. I mean, it was a tumultuous time. In the meantime, Martin Luther King got assassinated. Uh, You know, there was this Vietnam thing that was uh, winding down. It was a very tumultuous time. Musically, it was a wonderful time. I mean, you know, there were uh, some of my heroes, Dwayne Allman and, of course, Hendricks, and there was just a lot of music going on. Uh, it was a wonderful time in that regard, but it was a very tumultuous time. It was, uh, you were torn in a lot of directions and it wasn't a necessarily comfortable time to live through. Uh, in retrospect, it seems great, but at the time it was, we were bombarded with so many things. And so, uh, in in the death of the the assassination of Martin Luther King had a big impression on me at Georgia Tech that kind of shook me up. And so I guess you could say, uh, those two people are the kind of the symbols of my influences of, Macon in Atlanta being uh born and raised halfway between Macon, Atlanta, and Jackson, so I want to do uh, a spoken word piece uh in tribute to uh Martin Luther King jr. and leading into a uh, a soulful piece uh that tributes the soul background as well as other aspects of of the word kind of a study of the word and about a trip I took down to Macon one time, I had the privilege of performing the uh the song which is called uh the Heart of the Soul in Macon for Mama Louise tribute, which is amazing. And Macon's a pretty conservative town. Uh, but at this particular event, which is tribute, uh, sponsored by the almond brothers and tribute to, uh, Mama Louise, because she owned a little soul food restaurant right around Capricorn studios. In the early days, the almond brothers would go there to eat. And of course, she's a black woman and, and they were white, uh, hippie kids, which they weren't so popular in Macon at that time. They weren't, you know, rock stars. They were just starting out, but she would feed them. in. uh, even if they didn't have money, she said, well, you can pay me later. And, and she would feed them because she didn't have an ounce of prejudice in her bones. I mean, and she, they later took her on the road with them. Uh, and they asked me to do this, uh, piece. Uh, that's a spoken word piece that I kind of modified in, in, tribute to her. And I was, uh, real pleased because Greg Almond shook my hand and thanked me. And so did Alan Alden, Walden. What I loved about it was because this woman who was just a, a had a little restaurant, a little soul for rest that brought all these people together. I mean, they were politicians, they were rich people, they were poor people, they were musicians, they were all in a tribute for her. You know, it's a kind of tribute at a, at a fancy, uh, a big uh, banquet room where you would usually be some rich person, I don't know, Woodruff or somebody here in Atlanta. Uh Whereas this was a big tribute for Mama Louise, and I'm, I'm getting off on this a little bit, but I do have making Roots. And so I'm going to do these two pieces, spoken word piece leading into a song, a spoken word piece called Where Dreams Become Real, song entitled The Heart of the Soul. And when I travel to Europe and I've done seven tours of Europe, people are, were not real happy with Americans uh, over the last 10 years or so due to things that were happening in Iraq, et cetera. I would always tell people that I'm from Georgia, which I'm real proud of because we've had two Nobel Peace Prize winners from Georgia, uh, Jimmy Carter And Martin Luther King Jr. And I talk about the soul music that's come from the state, starting with, you know, with James Brown and Otis Redding and et cetera, et cetera. And I call it the heart of the soul. So I'm going to do this. I I don't mean to get too long winded in this intro here. Once there was a dreamer who dreamed for all mankind, for all the forgotten people, all those left behind. And he carried his dreams from the small towns and the cities to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And he told us of a day when all mankind would be free at last, but there are those who, out of ignorance and hate, who would destroy the dream. And he was shot down in Memphis around supper time, but the dream did not die. For you can kill the dreamer, but you can't kill the dream. it lives on. In that place where dreams become real. In that place, the soul is revealed and dreams become real. Twenty years later, I was watching my TV when I saw the dream personified. I saw some kids interview down on Auburn Avenue and I knew the dream was still alive. You could see it written in their faces. You could see it shining from their eyes. You could see it in the way they held themselves. The way they held their heads up high, the dreams alive, in that place where dreams become real. In that place, the soul is revealed and dreams become real. He said, I want to take you where dreams are real. He said, I want to take you where dreams become real. Where dreams become real. Where dreams are real. He said, I want to take you where dreams become real. see's best We decided to drive down to Macon See where they laid the big old rest By the time we got there It was too late to really see anything eh? Standing in the middle of the Otis Redding Memorial Bridge We all swore we could hear him sing You and me, we were the best of friends Swore we'd be together to the very end Driving deep down into the heart of the soul Out of control, it's you and me in the heart of the soul. Driving back that night, consumed by a mysterious fire. Each in turn our stories told Each in turn we bared our soul Told of all the good times and all the bad Cried real tears but we weren't sad Of all our secrets and all our schemes to say goodbye I don't want the night tear so I lay my heart on the line for you and that's not such an easy thing for me to do but I love you you close your eyes you can feel it deep down in your soul you can feel it you and me we were the best of friends So we'd be together to the very end diving deep down into the heart of the soul down where the fire got the got of got it, got gotcha, got gotcha, got it, got it, got it, got it, got gotcha, got gotcha, got got it, got gotcha, got gotcha, got gotcha, got got it, got got it, got it, got 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 A rainy, rainy night in Georgia. And I got to get back to Georgia. I'm gonna take that midnight train to Georgia. Cause Papa's got a brand new bag. And I got them Spur blues. Do you hear what I say? Do you hear what I say? What I say? What I say? I think I'm losing my religion. I got to get back to that little town in Georgia. Got to get back to that love shack in Georgia. We got to, we got to, we got to get back to Georgia. To the heart of the soul. The heart.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to our acoustic performance, and interview with Mr. Kodak Harrison. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the album In Search of the Blue Groove. Okay. It seems like that album has a lot of horns in it, and it's uh, it's more of a rock feel than the other albums. I was hoping you could tell us about the, the influence behind the song, Love Turned on the Light.
2: Love Turned on the Light was written... Uh, as a result of the accident that I was talking about earlier. And that was an expression uh, about a metaphor for my uh, realization after the accident. Most of my albums since then, like I said, I went back to more of acoustic approach. However, that particular recording was more of a rock album. For a while there, I had a band in the... Uh, 90s that were focused on a kind of distorted acoustic guitar and electric violin, bass and drums called the Blue Groove. And then I also put together a 10 piece soul band with a, with, with a horn section, three piece horn section and three uh, female backup singers. And this album took about four years to, to come together. And both of those influences are on that record. And some, it should have been two records probably, but, uh, you know, you don't always get to choose those situations. So, uh, you know, there's that rock thing, you know, with the, the historic acoustic guitar and the electric violin and, uh, the bass and drums more of a lean, dirty, uh, uh my voice was pretty rough in those days. Uh I think it's gotten better because they don't allow us smoking in bars, at least not in Decatur as much, so I don't smoke, but uh you know when you're singing you're breathing a lot of and my voice was getting pretty rough at that time. And so I just kinda went with it. But at the same time I was doing I put together the soul band because of my soul influences. So that particular record is more Bigger production than some of the records I've done since the '80s. It kind of has those two influences in there. There's the soul band with the horns and all, and then there's the uh, more uh, lean, uh, dirty rock band. But I've also always loved saxophone. I think maybe that was one of the original reasons I was turned on to Springsteen. But it, I guess it goes to my soul roots, that horn thing. You know, there was always horns in Otis's songs, et cetera. In fact, he did a lot of the horn arrangements. but uh, So I've always liked saxophones, so there's always a lot of saxophone in my recordings, including that particular one.
1: And that brings us to one of your more recent recordings. My absolute personal favorite in the Kodak Harrison discography is Portraits and Passages. Well, thank you. My favorite song, Sad Soft Music.
2: Ah, yes. On my very first tour of Europe. I had met a a German musician playing, uh, in Columbus. I was doing a little trio that was in, uh, since I didn't have another guitar player or whatnot, uh, when, if I'm playing guitar, blues is the thing I play best if I'm gonna just, if it's just gonna focus on me. And usually I try to have another guitar player unless I'm playing solo or something, but, or at least another instrument. And, uh, you know, but this guy was, uh, he was uh, searching for the, you know, he was a big, huge blues fan. Uh, he was a German musician, and he flew into St. Louis and went down to Mississippi and searched for the home place of Robert Johnson and went to New Orleans and Mississippi, and he was coming, they were hitchhiking, he and another musician friends, and they were in Columbus, Georgia, and they heard us play, and he really liked us. And I kind of kept in touch with him because I was trying to figure out a way to get Europe. So when I first went to Europe, it was through the another friend of mine who was part owner of a French restaurant in Decatur, Café Alsace. So he told me about these great tickets for like $2.99 round trip. This is back in 99. And I was like, wow, I got to take advantage. And he said, I can get you a couple of gigs. And I thought, ooh, I'm gone for sure. So I was mainly interested in going to Amsterdam and Paris and uh, spend a couple nights in Amsterdam, three nights in Paris and a couple nights in Strasbourg. And I went into Germany to play one gig that the guy I'd met in Columbus had set up. That turned out to be a great gig. Uh I made contacts there. I played that club seven times in there. I just love those people. The Germans uh, have, have listened to English music. All their German musicians, all the pop German musicians sing in English. Uh, I guess because of the occupation, they have been listening to English music on radio for 40, 50 years now, at least in former West Germany. And it was just a great gig. I mean, I had lost my CDs in France. They were stolen in the mail or whatever. And people were giving me money to send them CDs, standing ovations. And, you know, I made, and the money I made there, was enough to basically pay for the trip, and I made some contacts there that are proved to be valuable. And every tour has included Germany. I've also played in Prague and in the Netherlands, etc. But uh, the musician that I met suffered from a depression, and when I was there, he was just in a real foul mood the whole time. Even though he got me the gig and he gave us a place to stay, he just—I never saw him smile the whole time, and I. And, uh, it turns out he suffered from clinical depression. I mean, he had great kids and great situation, I thought. But, and we got back after the gig and we broke out a little Tennessee's best, uh, in reference. You heard that, uh, uh, because he bought one of my CDs and he'd heard that my, uh, label for Jack Daniels, uh, in the heart of the soul. And, uh, he broke, he broke out a bottle of, of, Jack Daniels and had a little bit and I saw him smile for the first time. And because it was late at night and he put on this late, quiet, kind of arty music and kind of a European sounding stuff. And because he liked a lot of American blues and stuff. But uh and I wrote that song for him and I wanted it to sound European. So I put the accordion. That's Brandon Bush on the accordion there. You may have seen him night before last on ABC with Sugarland playing the accordion as well as keyboards. He was my roommate for a while there. Nick Longo, who is my saxophone player, my saxophone player, you know, he's got his own band. He plays a lot of people. So I should leave out the word my, but has played saxophone with me since about 92. Uh, and it's been on every recording I've made since then. I played clarinet on that song specifically to try to give it a European song. And, and, uh, I, I particularly like that. I think it's a very poetic piece and I, I'm glad that you like that too.
1: There's another song on that album that I really like too. Uh, Maria's eyes. Yeah, it, it depresses me a lot, but it's it's a song I like a lot.
2: I, I like it too. It is somewhat a depressing song, and I don't know where that song came from. You know, I have a friend of mine said you channel that song, and I've had other people. You know, there's a, it talks about a kid who, a young kid who. Got in a fight with his girlfriend, and he was trying to make it up for him, trying to get some money. So he robs a convenience store, and ends up having a car crash. But so it doesn't—it is a depressing song. And people ask me, "Have you ever robbed a convenience store?" I'm like, "No, no, man. You know, my songs are not necessarily." From personal experience, even though there's a, there's a little bit of me in all these songs, Lazy River Blues we mentioned earlier. It comes from my living in New Orleans, but I never did have a farm and never got flooded out, and never lived in Slidell, etc. I wasn't born in Slidell, so. But this song in particular was something I think I was in West Virginia at the time when I wrote it. I just kind of channeled it. I think it's very poetic. It is a little depressing, but I, I like that song too. <laughs> I'm glad you like. In fact, the, both of those are kind of depressing, but they're both very poetic. And those are the kind of songs that I listen to. I call them, uh, late nights alone with my favorite intoxicant. A few of those songs that never fail to touch my soul. They're not songs you play in the morning when you get up. They're late night songs. Maybe you're by yourself. Maybe you're a little bit contemplative, you know, et cetera. And those are the, and, and I really, uh, I'm attracted to those kind of songs and quite often write those songs and, and think they're some of my best songs also,
1: you know. Those are the kind of songs that I always find myself the most attracted to.
2: We have a common link there then, because I do too. There's room for all types of artists. Uh, you know, there, there's room for the Jimmy Buffetts and there's room for the other side of that spectrum too. You know, you're not going to drink margaritas and and put on your colorful clothes and listen to songs like that. But sometimes those songs are appropriate, and I am drawn to those myself. She was right But I'm going to make it up to her I'm going to get some cash And take her out I'm going to treat her like she deserves To be treated I want to put a sparkle In Maria's eyes My Maria my I picked out a convenience store. cash it's just my luck to fool pull the gun so i shot him in the chest and he shot me back and that's when i put him away and i just made tracks forgot about the cash i headed straight for the interstate got sirens screaming in my ears. I got blood running down my side. But all I can see is my Marie. floor full speed ahead I got to make it through but I'm starting to see double things are spinning round I'm losing control things are spinning round stand still, things are spinning around. I'm going to hit that wall, I'm going to hit that wall, I'm going to hit that wall. I'm going to hit that wall, I'm going to hit that wall, I'm going to hit that wall. But all I can see, all I can see. My Maria's eyes, straight into Maria's eyes. I'll be safe in Maria's eyes. I wanna make it right in Maria's eyes. My Marie
1: Good. I understand that you have an interest in publishing a book of uh, some of your poems and lyrics. And that sounds very interesting. Yes, and I'm compiling one right now. And next year,
2: I'm uh, going to have the uh, endowed chair of poetry over at Georgia Tech. They have two of them over there. And it's the only uh, university in the whole country that has over one. One of them is in a permanent chair that Thomas Lux has, and one of them they re- revolves every year, and I'm going to have it this year. And I'm hoping to parlay that into some sort of book uh, which I want to put out of uh, lyrics and, and uh, poetry that I've written over the years, somewhat of a retrospective, uh, and hoping that that will help me get something uh, of that nature published. But yes, I'm working on that r- right now, in fact.
1: Tell us about some of the people that you've played with, uh, a lot of our listeners might be familiar with Amy Lee, but there's another sax player. Uh, you- Amy Lee, uh, who played
2: with Jimmy Buffett for years, and that's where I met Jimmy Buffett. I've mentioned him several times over the course of tonight just because, I I mean, I have a lot of respect for him. He's a consummate uh, entertainer. He knows uh, his audience, and he provides the soundtrack for that uh, a uh, trip that everybody takes once in their life to the islands and they can go back to his concert every year and drink margaritas and go back to the islands. I respect uh, him a lot for that. He's not a musician that I listen to a lot or uh I feel any kinship in terms of what I do, but I respect that. Uh and she played with him for years and had an opportunity to meet him that way. Uh Nick Longo, who is a uh, another saxophone player who was uh, has his own band and has played with me a lot. Was recently in my Theatrical production that I did at Seven Stages, Reach for the Moon. He was a part of that. Another saxophone player. Like I said, I love saxophone. Uh, Philip Rains has been playing with me since, you know, probably 1980. I've had a lot of great guitar players in my band from Dan Coy to Barry Richmond. I even, uh, did a set at the attic, uh, with uh, John Mayer, uh, backing me on guitar for one set. <laughs> Brandon Bush was my roommate for a while. And he plays with Sugarland and also played with Train and uh Christian uh who is part of the duo uh with Sugarland uh, is an old friend of mine and has uh, played on several of my recordings, singing or playing. And is also, I, I covered a song that he wrote about my accident that's on uh, uh, Portraits and Passages. Uh Sean O'Rourke uh, is a drummer that I played with a lot. Sean played with Sugarland for 14 months. He's played with Mother's Finest. He played with the Aquarium Rescue Unit. Uh, the Count Mabutu, who started, I've been playing with off and on since about 80 also, uh, has played with Bruce Hampton. In fact, uh, he's toured with Derek Trucks and as a result has sat in with the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton and Santana and, uh, last played with me at the track side before it burned, <laughs> uh, Louis Stephanel, who played with, uh, great Atlanta soul man, uh, Curtis Mayfield, you know, I'm going to leave people out, but, uh, Kristen Markin has sang with me. She's got her own band and, and is awesome. Some of the people that play in the mountain stage band up in West Virginia has played with me for years, uh. I played with some great musicians in Germany too. I always go solo, but I played with uh, some good musicians over there. Caroline Aiken has recorded with me. The Indigo Girls, uh, not the whole group, but Emily Sayers backed me on a song on one of my CDs. Tommy Talton on my first album played slide guitar, and of course he played with Cowboy and the Greg Almond Band. I could go on, but uh, uh and working with uh, Rodney Mills, the the great engineer producer. And I've been fortunate to play with some fine musicians in my career and continue to do that to this very day and can't say enough about them.
1: Well, that brings us to the present, your most recent studio album, Dreams and Nightmares. Uh, That album has two songs at the very beginning that kind of go together. Well, it's a a poem that leads into a song, and that's uh, Rubber and Canvas and Run Rudy Run. So tell us a little bit about that album, the last album.
2: Those two pieces in particular,
1: uh, Sean O'Rourke,
2: I mentioned him, uh, the drummer. He's also has a little studio and an engineer and, uh, he put together these pieces and gave them to me and said, can you do anything with that? And you know, got any words you want to put on that and all. And, uh, I, I first did, uh, just the first section of that, which is, uh, I divided it into two sections. It was all one big piece that he'd put together, rubber and canvas. I put into the first part of that. It fit right in there. That's a, a story about uh, me in the hospital in the, in the ICU uh, after my accident. Uh, they left my converses on. I have a certain affinity. I don't have them on tonight, but you can't tell that. So I shouldn't even mention that. I have a real affinity for converses. I've been wearing them since the very beginning and always wear them when I play. I was wearing them that night and they, uh, they had me in there in the ICU with tubes going in and out of every orifice, so to speak, and my Converse is on. My mother was terrified by that horrified by that, and I think, uh, uh took them off. Uh, but the nurses got upset because they said, uh, they thought I'd be laying there for, you know, who knows how long and that would keep my feet from collapsing. So I wrote a poem about that and it fit right in there. And then he said, well, you got anything to go over the rest of it? And I thought, well, you know, I had written this song called Run Rudy Run and had changed the words a little bit. And I kind of really wanted to re-record it with slightly different words. And so I, um, I tried that. I thought, mm, that's pretty good. And I went up to his studio, and I tried two approaches. I tried a more spoken word and a more singing approach, and then we put them together. And there we had a little studio magic, uh, in my opinion. And so that's where that comes from. Sean O'Rourke is responsible for the musical track. Uh, he did it at his studio. And he put all that together.
1: Is there a song from uh, Dreams and Nightmares you might want to do?
2: I will do that uh, spoken word piece from there. You know, I can't do the track that Sean has there, but I can do the spoken word piece. And so maybe we'll just do that. Uh, this is called Run Rudy Run, which, uh, I wrote, a uh, an encouragement for a friend of mine who was, uh, suffering from a cancer. He was, a uh, closest thing to a brother I ever had, uh, lived next door to me growing up. And we were, uh, very influential in my career in the early days. I would play my songs to him when I was, uh, embarrassed or shy or to play them for anybody else. And, he encouraged me. And anyway, he recently passed on, but I wrote that piece as kind of an encouragement to him and kind of a uh, a look back from our uh, early days. I use the word Rudy kind of because it, I looked at it as a sequel to a song I mentioned that was back on my first recording, Rudy's Restless, when Rudy was just a kid and Rudy had grown older. So that was one of the reasons I used uh, His name was not Rudy, but I'll do that piece for you here. When we were young, we were strong and free and determined to stay that way. We'd heard the howling hounds of conformity, and we vowed to keep those dogs at bay. For we knew if we should ever falter, those hounds would tear us apart, deny they'd ever known us, feast on our hearts, on our hearts. Run, Rudy, run. Run, Rudy, run. Now we swore we'd stay ahead of the pack, and we never once looked back. We followed our hearts and the secrets within to those places we'd never been. We lived for the magic, for the living in life, found in the fire, the water, and the wind. We always remain true to our dreams on that road that never ends. Run, Rudy, run. Run, Rudy, run. Now the dogs of doubt are closing in, yapping at our heels, telling us our dreams will never come true, no matter how strong we feel, but we swore we'd never compromise, we swore we'd never surrender, and we look to the day when we'll finally realize we're more than just pretenders. Run, Rudy, run. Run, Rudy, run. Now there's cancer and there's heart attack. There's this pain in your back, and you're weak in the knees, and you're sore in the tail, and the dogs of disease are hot on your trail, pounding on your door, crashing on your shore, slowly washing you away while the winds of time whistle through your mind, and you can't even remember what you were trying to say, what you had to say, what you had to say, what you had to say. Run, Rudy, run. Run, Rudy, run. We swore in the very beginning we'd be in this race to the very end. So don't stop now. Don't quit now. Don't give up now. Run, Rudy, run. That's the spoken word piece that we do a little bit more elaborately on that particular CD. And then actually my most recent CD is a live CD from live at Eddie's Attic, which came out this April called Reach for the Moon because I did a theatrical production and talking about being an artist. Uh, you know, I started out playing guitar and then started writing songs and singing those songs and and became a band leader and a recording artist. And then I got into poetry and spoken word and and then um theater. <laughs> the director at Seven Stages, a little five points. Uh, Del Hamilton approached me about doing something theatrical there, so I put together uh, this p- this production called Reach for the Moon, which we used uh, music, uh, some pre-recorded, some uh, mo- well, most of it was live, and uh, we had dancers and uh, we did little skits kind of within it. I tell people, well, it was not a play. Uh, it was not a dance performance. It was not a concert. It was a little all those things. Uh, we used video and just, and it was a lot of fun. It's not something that I can easily do, but we went to Eddie's Attic and recorded some of the music, um, from it, uh, live and, uh, released that recently this past April. So that's actually my recent, rec- most recent recording, but it is a live recording. and I think there's a couple of things that have never been recorded before on that piece, uh, including a spoken word piece that I can do for you at some point. Dear Father, who are in heaven, I've been angry with you for years. I was just eight years old when you left, but only four when you were diagnosed and given only two years to live. Cancer has been eating at your insides, keeping you in and out of the hospital those last few years. There's something that's been eating at my insides also. Mother said you tried to disassociate yourself from me to keep me from getting too attached. I guess I understood. Mother said the last thing you said in the hospital was, I won't be coming home with you this time. You knew your time was running out. Consciously, maybe I understood, but subconsciously I was mad. Now I know I need to forgive you in order to forgive myself. All my friends had fathers and I wanted one too. I tried to wipe you out of my memory. It was just too painful. I do remember once when you got angry with me for what I thought was no good reason. I didn't understand that the stroke you suffered muddied your thoughts. The only thing I remember of your funeral was the pallbearers bringing your casket down those steep church steps. A rose petal fell from the casket as a tear fell from my eye. I reached down to pick up that detached petal. Disconnected from its flower, it felt so soft, so fragile, and so incomplete. All my friends had fathers, and I wanted one too. Now, I don't know if I really believe in heaven, but I do believe that you're alive down inside of me, helping to shape the person that I am. And now I want to know who you were so I can better understand who I am. Sometimes I feel so soft, so fragile, so incomplete, so disconnected, so detached. Please, pick me up. Daddy,
1: pick me up. From Kodak Harrison's live album, Reach for the Moon. That was his performance of his spoken word piece, Dear Father. Now we take you back to our interview with Kodak Harrison here on the Paul Leslie Hour.
2: I have one little other story uh, that I think is valuable in my career and a song that goes with it. I was uh, asked to play my roommate's wedding back in the 80s, and I played a Springsteen song and a song that I wrote. And then kind of forgot about the song. And then I had my accident and kind of was looking to go back into a more of an acoustic vein. And I remembered that song. And I had to—he moved to Columbus, Georgia, and I went down there and got the wedding video out and relearned the song. And I played it in some other weddings. And Chip Carter asked me to do his wedding and uh, told me just to—he trusted me just play something. You know, I said, "Well, what do you want me to play?" Well, just play something. So I had my young violin player, Daniel Brown. Uh, and we went over to the Carter Center for uh, rehearsal about three hours before the wedding. Uh, it was officiated by Andrew Young. And, of course, uh, his dad, uh, President Carter, was there, Rosalind Carter, and Carolyn Young, and uh, Chip, and uh, soon-to-be Becky Carter. We practiced the song to march down on. Uh, Daniel had forgotten his bow, so he had to go get his bow, so it was just me. And I played the song. When they got to the altar, I stopped playing it. Carolyn Young came on and said, I like that song. And then President Carter came on and said, was that the whole song? I said, no, I stopped because they got to the altar. He said, well, play me the song. And I played the song. And <laughs> I was a little nervous playing there for uh, those six people. After it got through, he said, I love that song. It's the perfect song for the wedding. I said, but it's too long. He said, well, they'll just have to march in at the end of the wedding. I said, end of the song. So I was like, okay. So three hours later, we're there, and Daniel and Guy, and we're off to the side, nobody's paying attention to us, we're playing some music, and then and I'm like, I wonder when we're supposed to play this song, because, I, you know, normally you'd see them and you'd start playing, but they were supposed to march in and towards the end, and, and about that time, President Carter stood up and said the wedding will start in two minutes. In the meantime, I want everybody to listen to the song. Of course, everybody immediately turned to us, and it was like having President Carter introduce me. And we played the song, and uh, it was wonderful. And later on, I was kidding him. I said, you need to go on the road with us so people will listen to us. And he mm-hmm. said, ah, they'll listen to you. Anyway, it's a great song, perfect for the wedding. And uh Carolyn Young came over and said, well, you know, Andrew Young's having a little birthday party. You want to play? And I said, sure. And I'm thinking backyard barbecue, play songs again. We're right over the corner. Nobody's going to be a Turned out it was a big tribute with 1,500 people at the Hyatt downtown. $500 plate. I played for Ray Charles, uh, Hank Aaron, Coretta Scott King, Bill Clinton, all in the audience, and Maya Angelou and uh, Harry Belafonte were hosting the tribute, and they uh, commissioned me to write a song for that. So that song led to that, all that situation. And, and so I feel like had to tell that story because this has uh, been an important song for me, and I, I'm going to play it for you. Sometimes I feel like when I introduce that song in 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 that manner that I put too much pressure on the song. It's not a very complicated song, and I remember when I first brought it out, the saxophone player I was playing at the time said he thought it was a little too simple for anything we wanted to do. But uh, (laughs) it's sometimes the simple ones are the best ones. This is called "You Took the Loneliness." a full moon love at first sight When I looked into your eyes I knew You could feel it too And I swore when I left you that night I would never leave you again. You took the loneliness. You took the loneliness away. a lonely world we live in I think most would agree Sure there's lots of people But it's just hard to find someone you can talk to So if you find that someone You know you're doing all right. If you fall in love and they fall too, you know you're downright lucky. Hey, I got lucky when I saw you. You took the long. You took the loneliness away. You took the loneliness. Full of broken hearts and broken dreams But you know sometimes It's not as bad as it seemed The clouds disappeared The sky turned blue very moment, I saw you, you took the loneliness, you took the loneliness away. You took the loneliness. You took the loneliness. You took the loneliness. You took the loneliness. You took. Took the loneliness away. Took the loneliness, you took the loneliness. took the loneliness away, yeah, yeah, ooh, ooh. yeah, it was a full moon, it love at first sight, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Mr. Harrison, it has been a pleasure doing this interview and hearing this great music from you. So my final question, and then maybe if you'd like to leave with some spoken word or something, anything. Sounds like a good idea. This broadcast is going out all over the world. My final question, what would you like to say to all those people that are listening in?
2: Wow. First of all, thank you for listening in. I hope that's something I've had to say or play for you. It's been entertaining and rewarding and uh, thought-provoking and touched you in some way. I don't mean to be uh, egotistical in that sense that I expect that, but I I would like that. Hope everybody uh, finds whatever they're looking for, you know, uh, whether it's an artistic dream or uh, uh, love or whatever. I, I would like for everybody to have their dreams come true. May your dreams become real. How about a spoken word piece? That sounds good. This is called Tied to the Microphone. Bruce Hampton said it was okay to fail if you're reaching for the impossible. The club owner said you're not blues and you're not rock and you're not jazz and you're not hip-hop. You're not folk and you're not country. You're not spoken word and you're not song. You're in between. I said, I like it that way. He said, well, then there's nothing I can do for you. You're tied to the microphone. But, you know, I want to find my own way. I want to draw my own map. I want to find my own way. So I'm sneaking down the alleys and I'm crawling through the cracks and I'm running down the canyons trying to find my own way. And I fully expect to be ambushed at any moment because I don't trust either side. And i know, tied to the stake. I'm the perfect prey for any predator who comes along. Because I'm tied to the microphone. I'm tied to the microphone. And I had no easy, recognizable early talents. I had to dig down deep to find what I had. I had persistence. I had desire and a little soul you got to have a little soul. So I let it sing. Now, I know I started too late. And I'm too old. And I'm too ugly. And I'm too this. And I'm too that. And I'm too skinny. And I'm too fat. And I'm too this. And I'm too that. And I'm tied to the microphone. I'm tied to the microphone. I let my heart sing. I let my heart sing. I got no regret. I let
1: it sing. I let my heart sing. I let my heart sing.